All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show for all things real food and the processes that bring it to the table. As always, I'm your host, Paul DeWeeland, and today I have another solo sode for you guys. I haven't had one of these in a while, but if you remember on Instagram, if you follow me there not too long ago, a couple months ago, I asked a question about animal domestication and if people are interested in learning about animal domestication on the podcast. This is something I have been really interested in for a while now, and I've been wanting to learn more about it. And it's always really just fascinated me. So I figured I would do some episodes on different animals so that we can learn about how they got domesticated, you know, what the whole story is, and how they turned into the animals that we have today. And the first one I want to talk about are cattle. And this today will be the story of cattle domestication, at least, you know, the early years, how it started, and how the cattle kind of spread throughout the world. This is the Year of Plenty podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on whichever platform you listen. Make sure to leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. Support it by making a small donation on Patreon with the link in the episode description. If you don't know, Patreon is a service that allows you to help me create the show with donations as little as $2 a month. One of the main reasons I've always been so interested in the domestication of animals and plants is because when we figured that out as humans, it was such a gigantic step into you know, our progression to what we are today. And that's why I think people should be aware of you know, the domestication of different animals and plants and how we got there. But before, I think it makes sense to really define what domestication is. So, you know, according to Britannica.com, domestication is, quote, the process of hereditary reorganization of wild animals and plants into domestic and cultivated forms. According to the interests of people, in the strictest sense, it refers to the initial stage of human mastery of wild animals and plants. The fundamental distinction of domesticated animals and plants from the wild ancestors is that they are created by human labor to meet specific requirements or whims and are adapted to the conditions of continuous care and solicitude people maintain for them. End quote. Yeah, that's a beefy definition, I know, but, you know, everything's in there for sure. It's basically our ability to take wild animals and plants and then breed them according to our needs. And that we bred them in a way or adapted them to conditions where they are going to need us humans continuously to take care of them. So at this point, you might be wondering, when did we even start domesticating things, right? Well, this was a long time ago. On the whole, like, timeline of human evolution, it's not that long ago, but, you know, for us, it's a long time ago. And domestication is actually considered to be a defining milestone of the Neolithic period. This time period is also referred to as the New Stone Age, which interestingly developed at different times in different parts of the world. So that's why we can't really pinpoint a single start date or location. And, you know, there's a lot of debate on when what happened, but in general, it's agreed that the Neolithic would have started somewhere around 10 to 11,000 years ago. So according to ancient.eu, in the Near East, the Neolithic didn't happen until 9,000 BCE, and it came like 2,000 years later in Europe. And even then within a specific region, like within Europe, for example, 
agriculture and the Neolithic really developed during different times. So for example, agriculture was first developed in Southeast Europe about 7,000 BCE, in Central Europe around 5,500 BCE, and in Northern Europe about 4,000 BCE. So in Europe, it happened at all different times, and even in Asia, the Neolithic goes from 6,000 to 2,000 BCE. So yeah, those dates are all over the place, right? But the big idea really here is that in some places, the Neolithic began several thousand years earlier than in others. So why was the Neolithic so important to us? Well, during the Neolithic, you know, we started forming agricultural societies and produced much stronger and more reliable stone tools, which allowed us as a population to grow and prosper immensely. But what's really interesting to me is this shift from food collection culture, like hunter-gatherer, to a food production culture, which is more you know, agricultural-based. And that's when we first started developing a real dependence on these domesticated plants and animals. And out of all the animals that we could have domesticated, you know, cattle were one of them, and they were also among the earliest animals that we domesticated. And that's probably because of the multitude of useful products they provide to us, right? So, you know, people have used cattle for meat, milk, the blood, I mean the fat, all the edible parts. Then we use secondary parts for clothing, tools, hides, you know, even manure or, you know, dung for fertilizer. And of course, they were incredibly important to us as work animals. But what is the actual story of cattle? Where did they come from and at what point did this all start? Well, as of now, the earliest signs of cattle domestication can actually be seen by the pre-pottery Neolithic cultures who lived in the Taurus Mountains in the Fertile Crescent of the Near East. If you haven't heard the term Fertile Crescent, that's a good one to know. Um especially if you're interested in you know, human evolution and just evolution in general. The Fertile Crescent is also referred to as the Cradle of Civilization. And it's called the Cradle because it was such an important area for the start and then development of humankind. Today, the Fertile Crescent is a region that includes parts of you know modern countries like Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, North Egypt, Iraq, and even has the Mediterranean Sea on one of its coasts. So that's where a lot of the agriculture began, and a lot of the domestication of plants and animals. A genetic study that I found, which was published in the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution in 2012, suggests that there's evidence for cattle domestication as early as 10,500 years ago, which, by the way, is 8,500 BC or BCE. You know, doing this kind of research, some people always talk or refer to the century and, or the millennia, and some people refer to the actual number of years. So it got really confusing to me. But basically, you take the BC or BCE number and you add like 2,000 to it. So 8,500 BC means 10,500 years, just to clear that up, because I'll be probably using both uh, throughout this episode. But this specific study consisted of an international team of scientists. And what they did is they took a DNA extracted from domesticated cattle bones, which were found at archaeological sites in Iran, really close to the place where they believe you know, that cattle were first domesticated. And the goal was really to take a close look at how small changes in DNA between the ancient cattle and modern ones could have occurred given different population history models and scenarios. 
So with the help of, you know, computer modeling and simulations and whatnot, they really concluded that the only way for the DNA difference to have occurred is if a small herd of 80 cattle were domesticated from a wild ox. So this means there must have been a cattle domestication event 10,500 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. And that's the one I was just talking about. And they were all domesticated from a wild ox, which is called the aurochs, which I'll get to in just a bit because you do have to learn about this animal if you have not heard of it already. But, you know, the study from 2012 that I just mentioned really only focuses on the very first domestication event that we are currently aware of. There's a lot of information out there on, you know, multiple domestication events. One I definitely want to bring up is a study from 2019, which is published in a journal called Evolutionary Application. And in this study, the authors claim that there were for sure two domestication events. The first one in the Fertile Crescent that I just talked about, the one around 10,500 years ago. And that one actually gave rise to the taurine cattle. So here they domesticated the wild ox and gave rise to the taurine cattle. But then about 1,500 years later, there was another domestication event, a second one in the Indus Valley, which is a totally different place. And this second domestication event really gave rise to indicine cattle. So they're different than the tarring cattle in the Fertile Crescent, but again, both came from the same wild ancestor. And then potentially there's even a third area of domestication, which would be in Africa near Egypt, and this would have happened around 9,000 years ago. But, you know, there is some evidence. It's still heavily disputed, and I'll mostly focus on the first two in this podcast episode. Now, you guys are probably thinking, okay, you mentioned this wild ox that all these cattle were domesticated from. What is it? Like, is it a bison? Is it a yak? What is it? Well, it's neither of those, actually. It's an animal that is extinct today. This animal was called the aurochs. Its Latin name is Boas primigenius, and it was really the main wild cattle species that was ranging throughout the plains of northern Africa and basically all of Eurasia. And let me tell you, these wild cows were gnarly. First of all, they were literally huge beasts. It's basically a plus-sized clone of a modern bull. They weighed about a ton and would reach a shoulder height of six feet tall. The horns grew up to around 31 inches, which is just insane. Imagine 31-inch weapons coming from the head of this animal. And also, as it goes with wild animals, the aurochs was a lot more aggressive and less docile than the modern cattle. What I also thought was very interesting is that the aurochs was one of the very first ancient species of animals that early humans included in cave paintings. There's a drawing in a cave in France from about 17,000 years ago, which shows, you know, a painting of an aurochs, which, I mean, that is just so cool. This tells me that they were definitely hunted by humans and that humans probably valued them as a food source. So yeah, they were on the human menu. And I would love to have some aurochs steak right now. But what's also interesting is that despite you know, us domesticating them, we still kept hunting them. And we actually, it's believed that we hunted them into extinction. And what even, you know, surprised me the most when I was doing research is that a really small herd of them survived. And the last aurochs actually died in Poland in 1627. So that's not that long ago. It's like, come on, people. 
Couldn't you just keep one or two of these around, you know? I want to see what Norax looks like in real life. I can only imagine how awesome they would be out on, like, the plains. But we do actually have a historic description of one of these animals. And guess from who? Well, good old Julius Caesar, of course. He wrote in his history of the Gaelic War, quote, The aurochs are a little below the elephant in size, and of the appearance, color, and shape of a bull. Their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beast which they have espied. These the Germans take with much pains in pits and kill them. The young men harden themselves with this exercise and practice themselves in this sort of hunting, and those who have slain the greatest number of them, having produced the horns in public to serve as evidence, receive great praise. End quote. So, yeah, my ancestors were crazy. There is no chance I would get into a pit with one of these oroxes. But still, super cool to hear like an historic account, you know, from someone like Julius Caesar about an animal that I think most of us don't even know existed. But yeah, anyways, as I said, the aurochs was very different from domestic cattle. It's just because, you know, we probably consciously chose to select specific animals that favored traits that were really useful to us. And then through many generations, the wild aurochs really evolved into what we call a cow today. Again, the major difference being size and temper probably, you know, the early domesticated Neolithic cattle were probably smaller than aurochs, and we know for sure that the size decreased all the way until the Middle Ages. And then after the Middle Ages, we started to breed cattle, you know, for a larger size again, so they definitely increased in size, but none of our, you know, common cattle breeds ever got back to the size that an aurochs would have been. And I did read about a thing in the 19, early 1900s where um, a scientist was trying to breed modern cattle backwards, basically, to get an aurochs again. And they didn't get an aurochs, but they got a cow that was really similar in size, they think, and, and looks than the aurochs. So we kind of have an idea of what it would have looked like back then. All right, so now we know that aurochs was domesticated into taurine and indocene cattle. It all happened in the Fertile Crescent and in the Indus Valley, maybe in northern Africa as well. And we roughly know what time period it was. Let's look how these taurine and indocene cattle then moved throughout different parts of the world. So the taurine cattle were believed to have quickly dispersed through Turkey, you know, from the Fertile Crescent through Turkey, and then to the Balkans, northern Italy, from where they could have then moved across Europe. And there's two possible migration routes that uh, scientists are looking at, which are the Danube River and along the Mediterranean coast. So the taurine cattle ended up in Europe between nine to 8,000 years ago. And then from there, you know, they probably bred with local aurochs cattle because there were aurochs up there. And uh, from there, those animals were probably artificially selected into many of the other breeds that we know today. But, you know, it is believed that they might have also moved along the northern coast of Africa out of the Fertile Crescent, and then from there crossed into different parts of the world. But these taurine cattle moved more toward, you know, the west, more toward Europe. The second species, the Indocene cattle, which again were domesticated in the Indus Valley, they dispersed kind of far away from the original domestication site, and they went into China and then much of Southeast Asia. Now, even though they have the aurochs as their common ancestor, the taurine and indocene cattle, you know, they have distinct differences and features in how they look. 
So whereas the taurine cattle look much like the breeds we are used to here in the U.S., you know, like Angus and Shorthorn and whatnot, the Indicine cattle develop like a big fatty hump on their back. And their faces and ears are usually a lot more droopy, so they'll have actually droopy ears often. And it's believed that the Indicine cattle look so much different from the taurine because of the conditions in which they were domesticated. The Indicine cattle were, you know, also hardier and held up a lot better in times of drought and low feed availability. And, you know, now that I think about it, I actually saw some of these Indicine cattle in Africa when I was there in 2017 because they definitely stood out. I saw a lot of cows along the roads with like humpbacks and drooping ears and kind of, you know, horns that are pointing toward the ground and whatnot. And I was like, hey, those do not look like the cattle I'm used to. But yeah, now that I'm learning about all this, you know, I'm pretty sure what I saw were cows that came from these Indicine cattle. But another thing I want to address is how these cattle then went into the Americas, because we learned how they went from, you know, Fertile Crescent to Europe, Russia, Eurasia, and Africa. Then from the Indus Valley, more like China and Southeast Asia. But how did it get to the Americas? Well, it was actually Christopher Columbus, believe it or not. He brought cattle across the Atlantic from Spain in 1493, and he brought them to the Caribbean, an island called Hispaniola. Uh, It was a small population at this point, and it thrived. So, you know, Europeans figured, okay, they're thriving, so let's get more. And they brought even more cattle over. And the populations grew and grew and really thrived. And, you know, they introduced him to places like Mexico, Texas, Colombia, Venezuela. And after a while, interestingly, the cattle were actually allowed to run wild. So they let the cattle run wild, which, according to a website called Understanding Evolution, exposed them to natural selection once again. So exposing something to natural selection means that the animals are probably going to get hardier again and, you know, more resistant to disease and could survive in harsher climates and whatnot. So this was probably a good thing to do because by letting them out in the wild, they just adapted more to that region of the New World. But then again in the 1800s, they now took this cow population that, you know, went feral, went into the wild, and they treated them as livestock again. So, you know, they caught some of them and they started breeding them again into a lot of the common American cattle breeds. So, yeah, very interesting stuff. And I'm sure we could get more detailed, but I think, you know, I covered the big picture of how cattle kind of spread to different parts of the world. But there's one more piece of information I really want to touch on that I thought was really interesting and that I found during my research. And this is more evidence for, you know, cattle domestication, but from looking at the study of lactase persistence. So some researchers have looked at when genetic variations in humans appear for lactase persistence, which is the ability to digest milk sugar lactose as an adult. So basically the opposite of lactose intolerance. And according to Kay Chris Hurt in her article on ThoughtCo.com called History of the Domestication of Cattle, she writes, quote, Only about 35% of people in the world are able to digest milk sugars as an adult without discomfort, a trait called lactase persistence. This is a genetic trait, and it is theorized that it would have selected for in human populations that had ready access to fresh milk. Early Neolithic populations who domesticated sheep, goats, and cattle would not have yet developed this trait. 
and probably processed the milk into cheese, yogurt, and butter prior to consuming it. Lactase persistence has been connected more directly with the spread of dairying practices associated with cattle, sheep, and goats into Europe by liner band ceramic populations beginning about 5000 BC, end quote. So yeah, I guess the consumption of dairy came a lot later, you know, 7,000 years ago. That's like 2,000 years after we first started domesticating the cattle, even longer than that. And I did actually read that at the beginning, we weren't really domesticating cattle for the milk. That's something that came way later, as we just touched on. And, you know, it is interesting because it does highlight the fact that we really haven't been consuming dairy as humans for very long, which, you know, might not mean much at all, but there's a lot of people out there that are lactose intolerant or just can't handle dairy. And this is why, because they don't have the genetic trait to do it. So if you're out there and you have issues with dairy, you know, maybe consider it from an ancestral lens. Maybe, you know, you just don't have the genes to really eat it because for most of the time of our human evolution, we didn't. All in all, cattle have been tremendously important to our evolution and, you know, they're still super important animals today. Over the last 10,000 years, we have bred them from a wild ancestor into very specialized breeds that are now used all around the globe. In the U.S. alone, we actually had about 94 million cattle and calves in 2019. That's a huge number. It's definitely far less than what we had in previous times. Like the 70s and 80s, we had way more cattle than we do now here in the U.S. And, you know, not all of the 94 million are beef cattle or used for food. So not all of them make them to the butcher. Now, on a global scale, we had about 989 million of them last year just to give you kind of a comparison. So yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that the domestication of cattle was a major event in the history of our evolution and a very, very important one to say the least. All right, that's all I have for you guys today. I hope you liked this episode. I hope you learned about cattle domestication and I hope I covered everything that you guys wanted to know. If not, if you think there's anything else I missed or another animal domestication or plant domestication you want me to talk about, let me know. Just send me a message on Instagram. You know, my Instagram is at Wheeland, all one word. You can find a link in the podcast description. Also, you can send me an email, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com. I will take your suggestions and try to see what I can do with them. If you do get value from the show, please make sure that you're subscribed. This way you will never miss a single episode. Also, if you're using Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave that five-star written review. That's just going to let a lot more foodies like you and I discover the show. And finally, please follow the podcast on Facebook. Just look up Year of Plenty Podcast on Facebook and you should find it. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Let's keep exploring food together.